Well, Merry Christmas to everyone. We're glad to see you all here this morning on this Christmas Eve service. And for those that are visiting, we're very happy to have you as well. Many family members and friends from out of town. And uh, we're glad that you're here. And some, some in town that are visiting with us, we're pleased to have you all with us today. Christmas is always a very special time of the year. For most people, at least, and uh, I remember as a kid how what it was like waiting, anticipating Christmas, like it was never going to come. But now that I am uh, as old as I am, it seems to come like that anymore. It's just here. It's just it's like it creeps up on you and it's gone. Well, this morning we want to worship our Lord through the ministry of the Word. So I'll ask you to turn to Luke chapter 2, the passage that was read this morning. We were here last week and we, we talked about the decree that went out from Caesar Augustus and all that took place during that, that time as... Uh, as the birth of Christ was very close. You know, um, for the first few centuries of church history, Christ's birthday was not celebrated. In fact, uh, Origen, the early church father, argued against celebrating birthdays of saints and martyrs. He argued that if anything's going to be celebrated, it should be their deaths. The reason for this thinking was that kings and potentates of that time almost always celebrated their birth dates. For example, in Genesis chapter 40, verse 20, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants. Matthew chapter 14 tells us that Herod, when his birthday came around, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company, and it pleased Herod. As early as the second century, Christ's birthday had been forgotten, and many dates were espoused as being the true one. But it wasn't until the fourth century that the date of December 25th became the date set by the Roman church, and eventually the church at large began to celebrate on that day. The point of this all is that God decreed from eternity past and set his plan in motion to send Christ into the world and that that became a reality. Martin Luther confessed this, when I'm told that God became a man, I can follow the idea but I just do not understand what it means. For what man, if left to his natural promptings, if he were God, would humble himself to lie in the feed box of a donkey or to hang upon a cross? God laid the Christ the, on the Christ the iniquities of us all. 
This is that ineffable and infinite mercy of God which the slender capacity of man's heart cannot comprehend and much less utter. That unfathomable depth and burning zeal of God's love toward us. Who can sufficiently declare this exceeding great goodness of God? Martin Luther was right. How can, how, can our, how can our feeble minds even entertain the idea that God, the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, the one who is mightier and higher than all, would humble himself to be born into a human body? And yet, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, And he moved a throne of earth from the throne of heaven to bring it to pass. One prophecy. To bring to pass one prophecy that was obscurely written by one of the minor prophets. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, you know, I had all the times that I've read that that passage, that verse. I always miss those words. For me, God says He sent His Son for Himself. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The records verified that the Lord Jesus Christ was indeed of the house and lineage of David and that he had the right to sit on the throne of his father, David, as Messiah. However, God's plan was that when he came, he would be rejected by his own people, Israel, So that he could bring to himself another fold. You remember John 10. I have have other sheep which are not of this fold. Them I must bring in also. That's, That's us. That's you and me. Those of us who know him. Who've been called by him to be his disciples. Who've been saved by his grace. Who trusted in his name. Now that brought us up to verse 5 where we ended last week. And uh, so I would just call your attention to verse 5 where it says here that uh, they went to Bethlehem, which is called the city of David, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Mary. That name is a very familiar one to us all. There are many Marys in, in the New Testament, at least six, that are mentioned. The name is used 54 times. It comes from the Greek Maria. But its derivative is from the Old Testament name Miriam. Miriam means rebellion and bitterness. And certainly, not our Miriam. 
but certainly the, the Old Testament uh, Miriam that we can read about was a rebellious and bitter person. But that certainly does not fit the attitude or the character of the woman that we read about here in Luke chapter 2. She was a gentle and mild individual. It says that she was betrothed to Joseph. The Jewish espousal or betrothal was a mutual promise or a contract of marriage that was spoken of originally in Deuteronomy chapter 20. The selection of a bride was followed by a betrothal. And the betrothal was undertaken by a friend or an agent representing the bridegroom and by the parents of the bride. There was a contract that was made, confirmed by oaths and accompanied with presents to the bride from the groom and many times presents to the parents of the bride. After that, there would be a celebration feast. In some instances, it was customary for the bridegroom to place a ring upon as a token of his love and fidelity to his espoused uh, bride on her finger, a custom which has endured even to our own day. In, Hebrews, in Hebrew custom, betrothal was actually a part of the marriage process. A change of intention by one of, or the other of the two partners of the betrothed was a very serious matter. And the only way that that betrothal could be broken was by a writing of divorce given by the groom. This was what Joseph pondered. In Matthew chapter 1, when he was told that Mary was with child. The betrothal would last for one year. They were legally married, but had not physically consummated their union together. Now I want you to think about the stigma that followed. Actually today, there would be very little stigma because it has become so commonplace for people to cohabitate outside of marriage or to live with one another outside of marriage, and the society looks on it as something that's just absolutely normal. But in this day, it would have been a tremendous scandal. Even as, even as when I was a child, it would have been a scandal about 150 years ago. Both of these people knew who it was that Mary was going to give birth to. Look back in Luke chapter 1 very quickly with me. Look at verse 30. When the angel came to Mary, this is what he said. Verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, was there anything in Mary's life that caused God to look down and say, Oh, that gal there, she's... She's a good one. I'm going to choose her because of her goodness. No. No. Mary was no better than anyone else 
on the earth at the time. She was a sinner just like everyone else. What we see here is God's grace, God's favor looking upon Mary in spite of the fact that she was a fallen sinner. However, Mary did obviously love God and believed in Him. Verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great, the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. Matthew chapter 1, you need to turn, I'll read, I'll read Joseph's story. The angel came to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is, is born in her or conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. For she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now there's at least two lessons that we can take from this this little section that we've talked about. Number one is the status that's involved. High privilege, listen to carefully, high privilege in God's sight does not exempt us from the contempt of the world, but often causes it. We are, those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, believing and follow and seek to obey His Word, are believers. We are His children. To relate that to those who do not know Him sometimes can sound arrogant. But actually it's just the opposite. It is the most humble of things you could say. Because none of us deserve to be called the children of God. We deserve to be punished eternally. But God has had favor upon us because of Christ. Think of the contempt the world has for you simply because you are a Christian, a believer. And if you're not a Christian, then you haven't experienced that kind of contempt. The second thing we, we learn here is expectation. Don't expect the world to applaud and honor you because you are a follower of Christ or because you believe the Bible. It will be just the opposite. Your honor is not realized here. Your honor is realized when you're gone and you're with the Lord. And then the honor that you receive, you will not keep, for you will gladly turn it all over to him who is worthy to receive it, who loved you and gave himself for you. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, the world hates you. Because I chose you out of the world, the world will hate you. 
Notice in verse 5, it says Mary was with child. Who was with child? She was, she was ready to deliver. She was that far along. Concern for Mary's condition must have been growing to full intensity by the time uh, she came close to her delivery. No doubt she's beginning to feel the pains of childbirth coming on. Remember, it was a miracle in itself that they could make the trip from, from Galilee down to Bethlehem, or down, it's actually, it was actually going up, uphill most of the time, 75 miles. How many of us would walk 75 miles somewhere? Serious, rugged terrain with serious complications. And even though Joseph and Mary knew who the child was, it seems strange that they did not make more urgent plans for their travel to Bethlehem. So that maybe they could be there already when the birth took place. Harry Ironside ponders these kinds of questions. He says, I wonder if Mary ever thought of the words of Micah. I wonder if Joseph was concerned. Did Joseph know that the child must come into the world at Bethlehem? They seem to make no plans or preparation for it to be born in Bethlehem. That Christ should be born in Bethlehem was something that was well known to all Jewish society. It was foretold in the scriptures by the prophet Micah. The scribes and the, scribes and the Pharisees knew it. The kings knew it. After the Magi came 18 months later to worship the Christ child, Herod brought his chief priests and scribes together and asked where the child, Christ child was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea. And we saw in John chapter 7 that Jesus, who hailed from Nazareth, they said, The people said, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the the town where David was? They knew. I think the application is clear for all of us who follow and know the Lord. And that is that we, like Joseph and Mary, should be quick to obey and let God take care of the rest of the details, of the outcome. Our job is simply to know what God says and then do that. Just obey. Notice in verses 6 and 7, the delivery. It says, while they were there, the the time came for her to give birth. I like the way the old King James has it here. It says, and so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished. That sets a different tone. It says that there was no accident that this just happened to happen at Bethlehem at that particular time. The hand of God was on this event. The sovereign purpose and plan of God was being worked out 
down to the very last detail. Remember, the prophecy of Micah was 742 years old. Things had not looked good for the fulfilling of the prophecy, and they hadn't looked good for several months and weeks prior to this time because Mary was many miles from Bethlehem. But God is not hindered by earthly circumstances. He can just as easily adjust the circumstances of any time or place to accomplish what He has promised almost eight centuries before. We look at the promises of Scripture now when Jesus said, one day I will return. And some give up on that promise. Saying, look, it's been, it's been 2,000 years and more. Has He come? Peter said they mock. They scoff at it. But one day the Lord of glory will return. And when He does, He will take those who know Him with Him. And the world will be plunged into chaos. Even more so than it is now. The timing of God's providence is always amazing. It seems from the context that they had just gotten to Bethlehem when Mary began to deliver. Just gotten there. We know that because they couldn't find a place to stay. And almost two years later, we see Mary and Joseph living in Bethlehem with Jesus as the Magi come, seeking Seeking him as king, bringing him presents because of the star that they followed. Sometimes it's very easy to doubt whether God is going to be on time with these promises. But listen, God is never early and he is never late. He is always right on time. The prophecy of Bethlehem was now fulfilled. She brought forth, in verse 7, her firstborn son. That word, firstborn, is a much stronger word than, than we have definition for in English. It does not just mean first in time or sequence, but rather it has to do with, with first as in, <clears throat> as in indicating uh, Position, rank, importance. Jesus was her firstborn. And she had not yet come together with Joseph to consummate a marriage. Which means that she was a virgin. The virgin birth is a foundational truth of the gospel of Christ. For if he was not virgin born, then he was just an ordinary man, just like any of us. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee in Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. Of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. A woman who had never had relations with a man. 
is with child. In fact, Matthew says that Joseph kept her as a virgin until after the birth of Christ. Listen to it. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. G. Campbell Morgan writes this, The simple meaning here is that Jesus was her eldest child, the firstborn son, but there is a larger meaning. Firstborn does not mean only first in time, it means also first in place, first in order, first in importance. Paul uses the word in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn He is the prototype of all creation. The head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The word has supremacy. He has the right, because he is the firstborn, to inherit all of creation from the Father. Verse 7 says, she brought forth her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Swaddling cloths were just strips of cloth that were torn. Uh, normally the baby would be taken and, and he would be, they would be put on a, uh, a small, what looked like sheet, and they would wrap it around and then they would take swaddling cloths and they would circle the baby, sort of like a mummy, little mummy. So that his arms and legs would be held tight. It it made them feel secure. Even today, mothers do that. Wrap their babies tight in a blanket and hold them so that they feel secure. The point of all this was to show that he, though he was a king, he did not have the comforts of a king. Born in a nasty, smelly stable, which was nothing more than a limestone cave probably chipped out. Some place to keep animals out of the weather. Because there was no place for them in the inn. Here the focus is not on the town of Bethlehem, but the particular place in the town that the birth occurred. Researchers write this. In biblical times, the infant did not begin life in a sterile hospital setting. It was usually born at home where the conditions were unsanitary. The floors were probably dirt. Farm animals sometimes shared the living quarters. The water that was used to cleanse the child was often polluted. The clothing used to wrap the baby had been washed in that same impure water. Disease-bearing flies and other insects quickly found the infant. The stable where Jesus was born may have been no worse than some of the homes in Bethlehem. Considering the poor living conditions, infant mortality must have been very high. Demographics show studies in Egypt and other ancient cultures show that infant mortality rate was as high as 90%. 
90%. Many times, infant burial sites uncovered at various archaeological digs in Israel tend to support this assumption. If a child survived the first month, his chances of growing to adulthood were good. These were the conditions surrounding the birth of God's Son. And to top it all off, it says she laid him in a manger. She laid him in a feeding trough where donkeys and cows and sheep would have eaten. I remember years ago, uh, after my wife and I were married, this has been oh, so many years ago, probably 50 years ago or more, um, my father-in-law, who was a farmer and kept cows, uh, and he milked cows, uh, asked me if I wanted to go with him to uh, uh, cut some corn stalks and take them up to the, uh, the grain, the, what do you call it, uh, the, the mill, to have them chopped or ground into chop. Because he would take a small bucket of chop and put it in the trough. And the cows would stand there and eat the chop while he milked them. I remember watching the cows eat. Not a pretty sight. Lots of saliva. Lots of stuff running out of their nose. As they licked the trough clean. This is where Jesus was laid. The one who came from heaven, the one who is the king of the universe, is laid in such a place as this. The entire surroundings of the stable and the stall, there would have been much manure, many flies. Last of all, I want you to see the typology here. In verse 7, they laid him in a manger. Why? Because there was no room in the inn. They went to an inn, which is normal. You ever driven late at night and you're so tired you just want to stop and stop at some motel or something and get a few winks of sleep? And the signs say, no vacancy, no vacancy, no vacancy. They got to Bethlehem. She's feeling the pains of birth, and there was no place for them to stay. We would expect that the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, the Creator of all that exists, to be born in a palace, or at very least a nice hospital... What a contradiction that heaven's brightest ornament should condescend to such a low estate as this. This would be the picture of his life on earth. He would be the one who never owned property or houses, who didn't have a place of his own to sleep at night, and yet owned all of creation. What a contradiction! The Apostle Paul expresses that contradiction in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped for, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, of a slave, being in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the typical character of Jesus Christ. While men of wicked and sinful character are applauded and set on thrones and esteemed and adored, the Son of God is cursed and banished. There's so much here. Let me leave you with, with this. Many times when they would go to an inn, there, would, there were two types of inns. There was the type of inn that was uh, a place where you had a guest room. You had, a, you had someone attending you. you. There would be a place to get food and to eat. A place where people or recept, a place where re- reception of strangers was. There. This is the kind of inn that is spoken of in Luke chapter 10 when the Good Samaritan took the man who was half dead on the road, took him to an inn, a place where he could be taken care of, where people would wait on him. And then there was another type of inn that was just a place for travelers who just wanted to stop and rest for an evening. There was no host who stood at the door telling Joseph and Mary there was no room in this hotel. Rather, Joseph, when checking for spaces in the public inn, would himself discover that all the spaces were taken and now he and Mary would need to look for another place to stay. Today, It would be in the doorway of a store or under a bridge or on a park bench. A place of little shelter. There was no room. The point is there was no room for them in the end. Let me ask you this morning. Do you have room for Jesus Christ In the end of your heart? Or do you say to him, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Jesus, there's no room in here for you. The lives of people are filled to capacity with idols and with the gods of their own making. And until the sovereign grace of Almighty God intervenes and regenerates the heart of people, there will always be no room for Jesus Christ. For you see, He demands all the room of your heart. All of it. You say, well, I'll take Jesus part way, but I'm going to keep the rest of my life for me. No, sorry, that won't work. You have to surrender it all. You have to renounce yourself for Him. 
You have to follow Him while forsaking yourself. It can't be halfway. It's either all or none. Is the heart, is the room in your heart for Jesus Christ today? You say, well, no, there's no room. Then all that's left for you is judgment. Read the scriptures. That's what it says. He that believes in Him is not judged for their sins, but he that does not believe is judged already. Listen, that's the real story of Christmas. Oh, it's nice to look at the nativities and the babe in the, in the, in the manger. And it looks, you know, the season is built up. It has all those sentimental flavors to it. But the real story of Christmas is not that little babe. It's the one who hung on the cross. Who died for sinners like you and me. Who rose again and is now seated at the Father, the throne of heaven. He's the one we should look to. Turn from your sins to Him. Believe in Him. Trust in Him for forgiveness of your sins. and He'll save you and give you eternal life. That's His promise. What a great story for Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time we've had this morning to come and to worship. We thank you for the story of Christmas. We thank you for the story of the, of the child who was born in Bethlehem. But even he said, as he looked towards the cross, for this purpose I was born. That I might give my life a ransom for many. And Lord, you have ransomed us. You have ransomed us from our sins and from the judgment of your, your own word. Jesus said, the words that I've spoken to you, they will judge you on the last day. So I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of what you've done for us. As we, even as we took communion this morning, thinking about the blood you shed, your body which was hung upon that tree. But you are not a dead, dead Savior. You are a living Savior. And you're alive evermore. And because you have life, we have life. And so I pray that you would do that for us this morning. For those who do not know you, open their hearts to receive the gospel and to be saved by your grace. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you.